Deuteronomy. Um, so you can go ahead and open up there. I kind of judged about it earlier, but we really will move through this a little quicker because most of it, there's new stuff here, but a lot of this is a retelling because Deuteronomy means what? We talked about this a couple second weeks ago. Law. Second law. It's just what the Greek word means. Deuteros is second. Namos is the Greek word for law. So Deuteronomy is, is basically saying, this is the law, but we're saying it again. Um, so that's what it is. Author is who? Moses. Moses. And then when it happened, the end of Moses' life. The end of Moses' life. And then another time marker is in Deuteronomy 1.3 there. Um, Deuteronomy 1.3 says, In the 40th year, so 40 years after they came out, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. So that's our time marker to say, after the 40 years of wandering, it's at the end of that 40th year, and now Moses is kind of rehashing, and that's where, that's where this book takes place. Moses is about done, but he's just going to kind of retell everything. Is that making sense? Okay. Um, so here's an outline for you. Uh, Deuteronomy 1 through 11, remember the exodus and wandering. Uh, and that, that's even broken up in like the first few chapters are kind of like summarizing the story a little bit. And then chapters 4 through 11 is Moses like challenging them to like, because of all that, please be faithful. Um, but remember the Exodus and wandering. Deuteronomy 12 through 26, remember the law and covenant. So it's going to rehash a lot of that stuff. It's going to call them to faithfulness to that stuff, warn them for disobedience. Uh, remember the law and the covenant. And then Deuteronomy 27 to 34, remember the promise and opportunity. Remember the promise and opportunity. All throughout, there's a lot of challenge and, and warning. And also all throughout, there's a lot of like, but if things go well, it's going to be better than you can imagine. Like God is, is both saying, if you're unfaithful, it's going to be bad. If you're faithful, it's going to be so good. Please be faithful. Um, and both of those options are, continue to be on the table for Israel. And as we've seen with God so far, it's not only that both of those options are available, but he will continue to make both of those options available even when they choose the bad one, right? They'll be disobedient. He'll curse them. And then also say, but if you obey now, I'll bless you. Like he always is offering um, blessing. Always, always offering blessing. Um, Deuteronomy means second law. We just talked about that. Uh, note especially chapter 5. Do you know what happens in Deuteronomy 5? That is also in Exodus 20. Ten Commandments. Yeah, so Deuteronomy 5, also in Exodus 20. I think it's just helpful to lock that away. Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20. So he retells the Ten Commandments. Which somebody asked last week why the Ten Commandments are so upheld. This is, this is part of it. It's like all the law is kind of repeated, but the drawing attention to like these are the ten happens twice. Other commandments, not all of them are repeated twice. The whole law is referred to a lot. Some of the, um, like the feasts and rituals and stuff are repeated. But the Ten Commandments is like these are the top ten things brought out twice draws a lot of attention um, so that's part of why they get so much attention um, secondly this is a big one I think when you read Deuteronomy and so helpful to think of it this way Deuteronomy feels a lot like a sermon Deuteronomy feels a lot like a sermon so I read chapter 1 verse 3 earlier where it says like this is what Moses proclaimed to the Israelites so this is Moses saying I have something to say listen to what I'm talking to you about and then he spends a lot of his time going through their history, which is basically biblical history, right? Like he's telling them biblical events and making applications from it. That's what Deuteronomy is. You wander through the wilderness, so listen. Please be obedient. Have you learned your lesson from your forefathers who died out here? 
are you going to apply it differently? Are you going to take this seriously? Like this, this whole thing reads like a sermon. Text, application, text, application. That's kind of how Deuteronomy flows. Um, so your next little bullet point there is learn to leverage the power of reminder in your ministry, the power of reminder in your ministry. I would say this on a couple of levels. For one, a lot of what Moses does, like I said, is, is like, hey, do you remember this story we just lived? Um, remember when it was good. Remember when it was bad. Remember how good God has been to us. And that helps him cast vision into the future. So I think on that one level, with people that you're leading, leverage that power of reminder to say, do you remember where we've been? Do you remember where you've been? Do you remember what it was, what it was like when we you know, didn't have a place to meet and this church started 50, 60 years ago in a basement somewhere? How good has God been that this happened and this happened? And this? There's, there's a lot of health in that in leading a ministry, recounting your history and reminding people where God has showed up and how he showed up and telling those stories again and again and again. We do it in our families. We do it with sports. All that stuff looking back to say, this is what we've seen, therefore this is who we are. And these are our warnings, both of those things. I just think don't lose sight of that in your ministry, which works in a small group, works in a discipleship context, works from a large stage preaching, and everywhere in between. To just say, remember what it was like? Do you remember when this happened? Um, is so powerful. It builds identity, and it builds trajectory, and it builds in warning to be able to say, let's watch out for where we've been before. Um, the other level I mean this um, is a little more subtle, but I think it's really, really helpful. I do this a lot with you guys, where for one, I'll, I'll work back just a little bit to stuff we've talked about that I know might be hard to remember, but I'll say, do you remember this? And then I'll tell you. Sometimes I'll ask you to do it, but a lot of times I'll say, do you remember this story? And then I'll tell you this story. So it's like, I'm kind of hoping you remember, but I'm not actually leaning on you to remember. I'm reminding you of something that I think is worth remembering. Does that make sense? It's, a, it's kind of a teaching thing. I, I don't know if there's psychology behind it or not, but I do it a lot, and I think it's helpful, because I think it's helpful. That I'll, I'll say, do you remember this story, and then tell it to you, and that hopefully what that triggers you, now you guys are going to hear me do it all the time. Hopefully what that triggers for you is, I do kind of remember that, but not completely, but you're telling me I'm going to fill in the gaps. I should remember that, because he asked if I remembered. Does that make sense? It just kind of does that to you. Now, whether you remember every detail or not, there's too much information to remember all of it. But I think there's power in doing that just as a teaching tool to say, hey, remember the story? Remember? Remember? Let me tell you. And then I think it calls people to lean in. Um, so I think that's worth doing sometimes just as a teaching tool. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Let's walk through the text a little bit. Um, so we talked about chapters um, one through four, our recounting the story. Um, so that's really what it is. You can just look at headings and Moses talking about. He talks about the spies that they sent out, their disobedience, rebellion against the Lord. Chapter 2, wandering in the desert. Then a couple kings that they defeated. I'm into chapter 3 now. Are you guys following this pretty well? I'm not camping out because these are stories we've already looked at for the most part. Um, division of the land. Part of, I'm at chapter 3, verse 12 now. Um, so that's what happened kind of at the end of Numbers. Moses is just saying, hey, we've done this stuff, but you weren't allowed to cross the Jordan yet. This is where we are. Moses is just saying, this has been our history up to this point, which has got us to this moment. Um, and then he's going to call them to obedience and not to idolatry in chapter 4. Um, the warnings about idolatry before they enter Canaan ramp up a lot in Deuteronomy. We haven't seen that. We've seen that talked about some. You know, they'll talk about worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But in Deuteronomy, it's a lot of like, hey, you're going to get in that foreign land, and there's a lot of gods. Don't worship them. You're going to get in that foreign land, and other people are worshiping other idols. Don't do it. Like, there's just a lot of warning. 
because I think he knows you're about to settle in right next to people doing this and you're going to give in or you're going to feel like I'm in a new land. I guess I need a new God because geographically maybe there's boundaries, all that stuff. So Moses, God, is really heightening his warning against idolatry, which they don't particularly listen to. Um, then chapter 5, Ten Commandments, we've talked about that. Chapter 6 contains a passage called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for listen. Um, so that is, um, it's repeated a few times in this passage, but really the one is in verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, Shema, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So that verse is referred to as the Shema, um, because it starts with that word here. What? That's my word. And that's oh. like, that's the verse I was going to read. Cool. Read it. This is about, read it. I'm not going to say much else about it, about the word, but just the passage. So that is the Shema, um, what's known as the Shema. What goes on from here is um, him saying other things. So it's like, that's how it starts. Like, there's only one God. Worship him, serve him only. Um, love him with all your strength. But then he goes on to say other things like, teach your children. Um, keep these commandments in your hearts. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Um, so he wants them to keep it in front of them. It's not just like, listen to what I'm saying to you and hopefully you remember it. It's like, build reminders into your life. Put up memory verses on your wall. Put them on your wrist. Put up, like all that kind of stuff. He really wants it to get in. Um, so that's what this whole passage um, is about, which is really good. Um, chapter 7, you guys following me so far? We're doing okay? Moving along fast? Okay. Um, chapter 7, he's going to tell them... Oh, wait, wait. I want to read this to you because this is interesting. At the end of chapter 6, I think this verse is really interesting. So 625, um, it says, And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. I think that's a really key verse for understanding some New Testament concepts. So he says, if we obey this law, that will be our righteousness. So in other words, it's saying that is how we're going to prove our faithfulness to this covenant here. Right, like we will be righteous by fulfilling the law. Pretty basic. Um, and that's a lot of what Paul, that kind of idea is what Paul is writing back to, um, like in Romans and places like that, where he says that Jesus Christ is a righteousness from God that is revealed to us, or the righteousness of God that we see revealed to us. So Paul is kind of hearkening back to this. If we obey him, then we're, that's the way we prove our righteousness. And Paul is saying, Jesus obeyed him, that is God's righteousness. We side with him, that's our righteousness. Um, but he's using the same kind of Old Testament concept. Is that making sense so far? Here's something I want to, that I want to draw out, though, from this verse, but you'll, if you read Deuteronomy closely, you'll see it a few different times. Several times in Deuteronomy, God warns them and Moses warns them, when you get to this land and everything goes well for you, for one, remember that I'm God and these other guards aren't. And for another, remember that it's not because, he says this uh, two or three times in Deuteronomy, it's not because of your righteousness that you got this. It's because of my goodness to you. So all throughout Deuteronomy, it's like the, the people saying, if we obey, that's our righteousness. Yes. And God's saying, when you get this good gift from me, it's not because of your righteousness. It's because of my goodness. Isn't that interesting? And I think slightly different than the typical stereotype we're given of the Old Testament. It's like I said earlier with God's wrathfulness. It's like he's just so mean in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's gracious. And in the Old Testament, people just had to obey all those laws or else God hated them. But in the New Testament, there's so much grace. It's not that simple. 
the Old Testament, God did demand obedience. And it does say that is how you, that is how you show your righteousness. But God is still in the Old Testament clear to say, no matter how righteous you are or aren't, this is my gift to you from me at no cost. I expect your righteousness. Your life will be better if your righteousness, you've promised your righteousness to me. And I want you to keep that covenant. This is my good gift. Does that make sense? So I think that, again, emphasizes to me there's not as much difference as the stereotypes hold between Old Testament God and New Testament God. All along, God has said, yes, I have standard for you. Yes, I have expectations for you. You people made a promise. Keep it. And it will be better for you if you do. These things I'm giving you are for your good. But he could have turned his back on them a zillion times if all he was doing was waiting for them to step a toe out of line. He never did. He said, I'm still sending you to the promised land because I'm good, not because you are. And that's the, the heart of God is the same. What changes drastically is that Jesus shows us this is exactly what it looks like in perfection. Now line yourself up with him, and there's a new freedom in following it. There's a new grace, new access to grace in following it. There's a new consistent blessing in being on his side. You get the spirit. You're walking with God regularly um, instead of having to make atonement and all that stuff. It changes drastically, of course, in Jesus. But the heart of God is not altogether different. And I think that language in Deuteronomy is really helpful for me seeing the consistency of God's heart throughout. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully that makes sense. Okay, chapter 7. They're supposed to drive out all the nations when they get there. Um, and not leave any of them because you're going to give in to their idolatry, basically. We'll talk more about the whole driving out all the nations and kill everybody thing when we get to Joshua because it's more prevalent there. Um, but you start to see some of that in Deuteronomy and in these other books where it's like when you get there, kill everybody, don't leave anybody standing. And it's like, that's so weird. It is weird. When we get to Joshua, we'll dive into it a little bit more deeply. Um, chapter 8, don't forget the Lord, right? It's more reminders. A lot of this is just sermon. Moses kind of repeating. Don't forget. Don't forget. Remember where we've been. Be faithful. Um, Chapter 9. What does your heading say? Mine says, not because of Israel's righteousness. So there's one of those sections where he's clear with them about that. He reminds them about the golden calf midway through chapter 9 and that he broke the tablets in chapter 10. So I had to make new ones. And he says, so I put them in the ark and that's where they are today. So they have the ark. The tablets are in there. Uh, And Indiana Jones finds them later. Uh, then on through chapter 10 and 11 it's the same kind of thing remember it, be faithful, obey the Lord here's the law, he's been clear with us please be faithful um, chapter 12 this moves into that next section on your handout if, that's, if the handout is a helpful tool for you um, so in chapter 12 and on for a while um, it describes the, um, the place of worship so he's, he says like basically you know, you've had the tabernacle it's kind of gone with you wherever when you get to this new land, I'm going to show you a place that you're going to set up a permanent place. And don't worship besides that. That's your place. Um, because that's just God saying, you've got an established place for me. So that's a lot of chapter 12. Um, chapter 13 is another warning about idolatry. Uh, and then 14, 15 are rehashing laws we've already talked about. So clean and unclean food, the year of jubilee for cancel- canceling debts, which I just think is such a beautiful piece of the heart of God that he tries to build into their rhythm. Don't hold debt against each other forever. And don't charge interest against each other at exorbitant rates. Just don't do that to one another. I said, I think you second years have probably talked about this before. I've always thought it would be an incredible thing at church to have just to do like a year of Jubilee at church. And if you did, I mean, just imagine, like imagine at this church, we could do this. 
if if we just said we know there's economic complexity we know like we don't want to create dependence everybody's responsible for their own self but we also don't want to be hyper western individualists either right here in the church we can take care of each other the bible talks about forgiving debts after a certain time because it's crippling to you we want to do that for one another so what if like what if you just had everybody honestly we want you to just write down where are you in debt and then everybody in church we honestly want you to write down where do you have excess and I bet those numbers would balance. Probably have more excess than debt, significantly. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't that be incredible at a church? To just say, we are proclaiming at this church, the year of Jubilee, we're, we're wiping it out and starting fresh. Debt is gone from within our community. We take care of each other. Imagine how freeing that would be for people if it was just gone. I'm sure there's a zillion layers of complexity it would be hard to actually do. But I don't want to give up the dream of, what if we did, though? That would be amazing. And imagine the, not only just how good and life-giving it would be for people, um, for people to, to be able to, like how it would be so humbling to say, I'm in debt a significant amount. And you just get out freely because somebody you may or may not even know anonymously gives their access to the church and you're now free. Like that would do something crazy to you to give your access to people that would probably be easy to be like, well, I've worked hard for this, and what are they, why are they in debt? It's probably credit card debt. You could do all that stuff. Just anonymously, I give it because we're taking care of each other and we're starting fresh. That would be powerful. And then imagine outside the church what it would do. If people are like, do you hear about what that church did? That's insane. Like, they actually did that? It would be so cool. So I don't know how it would work. Probably too hard to really pull off, but maybe not. I just don't want to give up on the dream. Um... And then chapter 16 um, talks about Passover and other feasts. So again, reminders about that stuff. Another idolatry warning at the end of 16. Do you see that? Uh, don't worship other gods. Um, one interesting thing I want to read to you. I think this is so cool. I'm at the end, of, towards the end of chapter 17, starting in verse 14. Let me just read this section. I think there's like some gold hidden in here. Um, so 1714 he says when you enter the land the Lord your God is given giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say let us set a king over us like all the nations around us like that's a pretty direct prediction right be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses so that's I think an interesting he's saying like you don't just get to pick somebody who looks the part let me pick your king so a lot of people will say this is way down the line but some people will say Israel's problem wasn't wanting a king it was that they wanted a king that looked like the other kings, and they thought Saul was great. Now, the story, as the story reads, it's like God orchestrates Saul being king. But you wonder if the whole time God is saying, this isn't really who I want. I just know this is who you want. So fine, have it your way. Just wait till I, till I get David in charge. That's who I want. And then things will really be good. And which is interesting. I'm not sure how exactly I feel about like God's will and volition and all that stuff. But I think that some of this is them saying, like, we want our own kind of king. And God's saying, no, I know what kind of king you need. Are you going to trust me? Or are you going to want one that's big and powerful and warrior guy? Um, and it doesn't go well. That's not the point I really want to talk about, though. There's something better later. Uh, verse 15. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who's not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Some of the kings during the prophets do that. They make allegiance with Egypt to try to help them in battle. And it's like God said, don't, don't do Like if you're siding with Egypt, those are the people I freed you from. That's a bad sign. Uh, for the Lord your God has told you you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives 
where his heart will be led astray. Who did that? David. Solomon, real bad. David did a little bit. Solomon really did it. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. It was said during Solomon's reign that silver was as common as a rock in his kingdom. That's how wealthy he was and how much silver he had. So all of these things is just like, you can have a king, but it's dangerous territory. And if they do these things, red flags shoot up. What happens right after Solomon's reign? The kingdom divides. And everything just goes down, 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 down. Assyria, Babylon, mess. It's like all this warning is, you can do it, but it's going to be hard to do it well. And if they do these things, watch out. They do all those things right in order, and it goes real bad. Um, that's not what I want to talk about either. Here's the really exciting part. <laughs> Verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom of Israel. So did you catch what he's saying? It's like bible language. But basically, when somebody becomes the king, he's supposed to get all of Scripture that they had at that point and handwrite himself his own copy of all of it and keep it with him. That's a pretty cool, like, take this seriously. You write it down personally, king. You want to be a leader? You better write this down on your heart and physically. And what that would do to you to write it all out would be crazy. I've always thought this would be such a cool thing. Maybe I should have residents do it. Or maybe I should just do it or what. But I just, I love the idea of you want to be a leader. This is part of why we teach all of scripture in this program. You're not going to write out all of scripture. I'm not going to make you. It might not be a bad thing to do, but I'm not going to make you do it. But you want to be a leader in the church, then let's learn the book. Like that's, that's what we have. And even God's saying, someday you're going to have a king and they're all probably going to be awful. But a way that, the, like he gives them lots of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Here's the one thing I want for you. Just write out the law. And if you do that, everything will be fine. And then you won't do this list of things. If you just do this one thing, it changes so much. So scripture being written on your heart, being written by your hands, being carved in your mind, that's what keeps us consistently grounded in what's true and what's best for us. Now, of course, you still have to obey. Of course, life is still like memorizing scripture isn't going to make you magically perfect. We all know that. But what it does to start shaping your heart is so good and so worth it. So I just think that's a cool little gem hidden in Deuteronomy that I didn't know was there until I started teaching this for 215. I had to through it all. I was like, man, that is so cool. So I just love that little thing. That is what I want to show you from that section. Now let's move on. Uh, go ahead. My group that are doing that. They're writing, really? they're writing out all of the Gospels. So cool. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, and it does something to you when you not just read it, but you write it out because you have to like you're learning the words, you're paying attention to punctuation, mm-hmm. it's engaging like your eyes, your hands, your like. It's just yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I like that. Um, okay, chapter eighteen is going to um, you know more things for priests and Levites, things you shouldn't do. That's most of what this is about. In the middle of chapter 18, there's a, a pretty important, like, messianic, overtone, prophecy kind of passage, starting in verse 14. Um, it says, The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. This is Moses talking. You must listen to him. 
Um, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see his great fire anymore or we will die. So that's when it's like, okay, fine, then I'll speak through Moses. Does that make sense? Because people are afraid. But this is like a really, really famous Messianic prophecy kind of passage that people will look back and say, or even look ahead like as, as Israelites and say, Moses said there would be somebody like Moses someday. That's what we're waiting for. Someday there's going to be somebody like Moses, and then we'll know finally we're actually free from these Assyrians. Maybe somebody like Moses will raise up and free us from the Babylonians. Maybe someone like Moses will raise up and deliver us from the Romans. And I think God is like, maybe someone like Moses will actually be a far better representation of me and lead you out of the slavery that really matters. Right? Does that make sense? So this is a great, and a, a pretty important biblically, and a very important in Judaism passage for what they're expecting. They're looking for somebody like Moses um, to lead them out of slavery, to lead them into God's voice and God's presence. Uh, chapter 19 is cities of refuge again um, chapter 20 is another thing of like destroy everything when you go to war you see how he's moving in and out of all these things this really feels to me like Moses is like these are the last things I want to say and he's basically got a few things like keep the law don't worship idols make sure you kill everybody because that's what God wants and he just like is cycling through all of them. obey the law obey the law oh, by the way here's the laws you need to obey don't worship idols because if you don't kill all the people you're going to worship their idols and you better follow the feast like he's just in and out of all the same applications um you can just scan all those headings they're all the same i'm in, i'm through chapter 23 it feels a lot like leviticus again like if anybody's unclean get them outside the camp miscellaneous laws here's some random stuff that i think might come up be ready for that um chapter 26 talks about first fruits and tithes giving you know your first portion to god and also giving to the poor um which uh, I was watching the Bible Project on this, and he one of the things he said about the generosity practices the Israelites were encouraged to do is like give some of your uh, give a tenth to the temple and another tenth to the poor. What Tim Mackey said, which is a very Tim Mackey thing to say, but but was good, is he said this basically if you compare it to other ancient civilizations, puts the Israelites on the cutting edge of justice in their day, which I think is a really interesting way to say that to say people were challenged give money to worship, and give your personal money to help the poor. It's like people weren't doing that, but that God builds it into their society. Let alone then the year of jubilee stuff and the freeing of slaves stuff. This would have been like unheard of kindness and graciousness for people in a society. And so it's easy for us to look back and have see so many gaps for people rights stuff that we would want to see, which is valid and difficult to wrestle with. But given their context cutting edge of justice issues Israel would have been, um, which is interesting. Uh, where are we? Um, do I want to talk about yeah, 26, um, 16 through 19. Um, I think this kind of just like summarizes a lot of the point of this section, which is why I drew your eye to that one. Um, so chapter 26, verses 16 to 19. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws, carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways, that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, and that you will obey him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor, high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. 
that language, he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above the nations. I think another way you could say that is, Abram, I will bless you and make your name great. Right? That's the same. You're going to be famous and well-known and praised. That's, the, that's what he promised Abram. So it's God saying, like, what I started way back when, I'm doing through you now. What I'm asking for you is, would you please, when I call you to go, would you go? And when I call you to be faithful, would you be faithful? And when I ask you to listen, will you listen? I'm doing what I've promised to do for generations. Would you please do what you promised to do? Um, but that's such a summary of a, it's almost like the Moses's dominant thought for this sermon. Like, this is what I'm trying to tell you. God has always kept his part of the bargain. Would you please keep yours? And everything would be great, is what he's saying. Um, chapters 27 through 34, remembering the promise and opportunity. So this is going to be, again, a lot of that stuff, but even more future-focused, rather than as much like, look what God has done, please don't disobey. This is a lot more of like, here's what's available to you if you stay faithful. So there's a lot of, like, blessing is before you, curse is before you. You choose obedience, you're going to be blessed. You choose to disobey, it's going to be hard. And that's so much of um, this section. You can just scan those headings like chapter 28. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, right? Um, renewal of the covenant in 29. So it's like Moses said, I just told you everything again. So seriously, let's make the covenant again. Like, we got to keep it. Um, and then chapter 30. Um, this, I think, is really interesting. Chapter 30, verse 11. So he's still talking about, like, blessing and curse being available. Here's what he says in 30, 11. Uh, now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Isn't that interesting? So much of what we talk about, again, our stereotypes of the Old Testament is like they were given this impossible standard that they knew they could never keep and God knew they could never keep. Like, I don't think it's that simple. Moses is saying this is not too hard. You can do it. So are you going to do it? I think that's really interesting to keep in mind. Verse 12, it's not, uh, it's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Again, it's not like a mystery from other gods. God's been clear. Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask, Who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think that passage is beautiful again, the heart of God saying, I seriously am trying to be clear with you. This isn't God setting an impossible standard and just watching and like, I'm going to enjoy punishing you for a thousand years until I finally fix it. This is him saying like, I've been clear. Now there's, like Moses even several chapters ago pointed ahead, there's more to look forward to where God will radically change the world through his coming. I think that was always intended. But the fact that he's saying, seriously, I'm being clear. Would you just do it? And I have good things for you. And if you do, how amazing could it be? If you don't, it's going to be hard. And then what do you think God's going to do when they don't? He'll keep his word and punish them and continue to be faithful, which is exactly what he did, right? Assyria sweeps down. Babylon sweeps down. Everything seems awful. But then Ezra returns, and Nehemiah returns, and they rebuild, and they're back, and things are coming. And then 
Jesus, like he never forsakes, even though he has to offer consequences. But all along it's been, I'm trying to be good to you. Just take my hand. That's always been the heart and the posture of God toward his people. And I think we lose those passages in the Old Testament. I think passages like this are so helpful for the people who struggle with that. God is so mean. Why did he change? Like God has been the same. His method of interacting, his method of like atonement has changed. His heart has not changed. It's the same. I think it's a big deal. Uh, as you can tell, because I've talked about it a bunch of times today. Uh, starting in um, chapter 31 there, it talks about leadership succession again from Joshua. Um, we, he's hinted that already in Numbers, but there's more of that in Joshua 31. If you read that, you'll start to see um, some of the same language as in the beginning of Joshua. In the beginning of Joshua, there's a lot of be bold and courageous, be bold and courageous. Here in Deuteronomy, there's a lot of that too. Joshua, I'm going to be with you, be bold and courageous. Uh, and then... Um, there's more of all the same stuff in Deuteronomy 31. And then in Deuteronomy 32, Moses says basically all the same stuff he said. He just puts it to song this time. So before it was like, let me tell you. Now it's like, no, listen, I have, I've written a poem inspired by my sermon. Um, and that's kind of what Moses does in 32. And then 33, he has blessing for all the people. It's like his final last words for like, hey, you my people. This is what I see in you. And then in chapter 34 uh, is when Moses dies. Um, so let me read uh, some of that section. There's one of it that I think is, one of these verses I think is really cool. So Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. It says, Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar, then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. I think that's so interesting. It's like Moses is dead, but he still had more in him. Which makes you think, what could it have been like if he hadn't hit that rock? Like, he had more left to give. I wonder what it would have been like if he's the one who leads him into Jericho, if he's the one who takes the next city and the next city. Maybe it would have been really similar. Like, God is still going to do what he's going to do. But I just think that's an interesting little detail that God gives us through Scripture. Like, Moses, it's not like, ah, he was old. It's like, this is clearly God's judgment because of his disobedience. But he had more left in the tank. It's interesting and sad. I want to be a leader who is faithful to the end so that when I'm old, I still have enough left in the tank and God's not going to cut me short. You know? Um, I don't know that God always operates exactly the same way he does with everybody as he did with Moses. But there's something in this that just, it kind of challenges me to like, I want to be faithful enough, even in my old age, to not get impatient, to not get grouchy, or whatever it was that got Moses that day, to not get arrogant at any point in my leadership so that physically I still could do it, but spiritually I'm taken out of the game. I don't want to be in it all along, which requires your heart being shaped, your heart being humble, or you can't. Um, I don't want to stand up on a mountain and say, you could have done more, but I took you out because you were, your heart was out of line. Uh, I just don't want that. Uh, verse 8, it says, The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. 
Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Do you remember what I read you in Deuteronomy 18? Someday there will be a prophet like Moses who raises up. So here, when whoever this is, maybe Joshua, wrapping up the story, it says, since then, we haven't seen one like him. So, which is partially honoring Moses and partially probably saying, but we're waiting, yeah. you know. We haven't seen anyone like Moses, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And that's the end of Moses and Deuteronomy. Um, so that's how it wraps up. Heart, kind of a heart-wrenching wrap-up to the story, right? Like Moses gets to see it, but not in the end. Yeah, sure. So we, do we actually know who wrote that last section? We don't know, but I, I think we assume it's Joshua. Yeah. So did God just bury Moses on his own? That's what it sounds like, huh? That's what it sounds like. Unless, unless maybe Joshua went up there with him and saw it and wrote it. I don't know. But it's fun to think that God did it. Did you have a question, Griffin? Okay. All right, guys. Pentateuch. We did it. Okay. Let me pray for lunch. And then we'll eat. God, we're grateful for our day. We're grateful for your word. Um, Help us be leaders. Help us be ministers. Help us be servants who are in it to the end. And with every ounce of strength that our flesh has to give, um, let our spirit, let our humility, let our character align with that strength um, so that we're not left grumpy and grouchy and arrogant at the end of our lives, um, but that we're able to pour out uh, every last day. Uh, God, I pray that as we eat today, our conversation will be uh, glorifying to you. Our conversations will be others-focused. Let us all just compete to love each other better through our conversation today. And let the food be nourishing so we have strength for whatever you have in store for us. And um, so let us honor you with our thoughts, with our actions, with our words, with everything today. In Jesus' name, amen.